Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. In John 15 verse 16, it says, You did not choose me, Jesus says this, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So I chose you because I want you to bear fruit. I want you to live a life of meaning and purpose and impact. And the kind of fruit that I'm going to allow you to bear through my grace is not the kind of fruit that's going to go bad. It's not the kind of fruit that's going to only last a little while. How many of you have got that drawer in your fridge where you put your vegetables and your fruit to keep them good? That drawer is also known as the place where good intentions go to die, right? Because like three months later, you remember that you once bought vegetables and you put them in there and then you take them out and they're rotten. But Jesus says the kind of fruit that my presence in your life is going to produce is a fruit that is not going to go bad. It's not going to go off. It's not going to go rotten. It's going to be eternal. It's going to be lasting. And so when we encounter Jesus, we actually come to a place where we are redeemed to his original purpose for us. Because what was the first thing that, that, that we were told as human beings? What was the first commission and the first command that we received from God? Be fruitful and multiply. Reproduction and multiplication is in the call of God for our lives, not just physically, but spiritually, that we would reproduce after our own kind, that we would be disciples that are making disciples, that we would be people that are leading others to the Lord. This is why we were chosen in Christ, so that we would be able to be fruitful and to multiply. Which brings us to Proverbs 11 verse 30 that says, the fruit of the righteous, those who, by, by the way, we're not righteous because we've worked hard for righteousness. We're not righteous because we've, because we've earned it, because we've been very religious or very good. The Bible says our righteousness, true righteousness, is imputed through Jesus. It's a gift, something we receive by his grace. So we've been made righteous by the gift of God. And now the fruit of our lives is a tree of life. It produces the kind of fruit that's going to lead to life. Isn't it amazing that, first of all, a tree that produces fruit doesn't benefit from the fruit that it produces. That fruit is for others. And in the fruit is what? The seed. The potential for reproduction and multiplication is put into the fruit. And so we lead lives that produce fruit leading to life. And then it tells us what producing fruit actually looks like. This is not abstract. This is not a mystery. I'm not stretching to try and connect these. It clearly shows us here that the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. What is that fruit? He who wins souls for God is wise. So fruit looks like winning souls. It looks like reaching out to the lost and bringing people into the kingdom and reproducing disciples in a way that produces lasting fruit. And this is something that we do to gather for eternity. In other words, it's an investment in eternity. 
We're investing in eternity when we do this. So Jesus says this in John 4, verse 35. He says, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Now, this is what a lot of people say. A lot of people say, you know, in four months' time, or when I'm ready, or later on, I will start witnessing. When I've studied the Bible more, when, I've, when, I've, when I've, I know more theology, when I've gone to Bible school, when uh, you know, I just need to take some time to prepare myself better, then later on, I will be able. So we've always got a later. We always put off reaching out. But Jesus says, you say that we're going to wait for the harvest time and then we're going to reap. But behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they are already white for harvest. They are ready for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages. God literally says that if you're going to go out into my field and you're going to do the work of reaping the harvest, I will repay you. You're going to receive from me wages and gathers fruit, there it is, for eternal life. Gathers fruit for eternal life. That both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So there's joy in the process. We receive blessing in the process. There's a, there's a repayment we receive from God and there is a fruit. The righteous, their lives are like a tree of life that produces fruit into eternity. We win souls and we rejoice together. So we all have a choice whether or not we're going to build our own kingdom or build God's kingdom. Whether or not we're going to invest in the temporal or in the eternal. We all have that choice. But only one of those two kingdoms will end when you die. The other one is eternal. And so soul winning, the scripture says, is wise. It's wise work. Why is it wise? Because it's investment into eternity. You're investing in your eternal future as opposed to just living for today, living for the temporal. And so the Holy Spirit empowers us to invest in eternity, just like investing in the temporal is also wise. People would say that if you're planning for retirement and you've got a retirement annuity or you have uh, you know, specifically put some money aside or you've put money into the market or you've done whatever you need to do, that investment is wise because you're thinking about the future. Now, this future is going to end at a certain date, but eternity and investing in it will continue forever. And so it's wise to win souls. There seems to be a great deal of cognitive dissonance when it comes to evangelism. What is cognitive dissonance? Cognitive dissonance is when you feel torn between two conflicting values or ideas. Torn between two conflicting uh, 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 sets of intentions that seem to be battling each other. In essence, cognitive dissonance is the mental discomfort that results from holding two conflicting beliefs, values, or attitudes. Like, has anybody here ever experienced buyer's remorse? 
Like, you know, when you're like, I, I need it because you were there in the mall and the marketing got you and you were like, I need this, right? It's amazing how, how you're able to develop needs when you go to the mall. Before, you didn't know that you had those needs, but now they are needs. And so, and so you go in and, and you know, you, what you should have done is that you should have taken some time. You should have just stepped back and should have just prayed about it. Um, and what you really should have done is you really should have phoned your wife, men. That's what, you, that's what you should have done. She would have told you straight, you don't need this. My wife tells me that all the time. You don't need this. Would have saved you. But then in the moment, you make the purchase and you walk out and you instantly feel like, I shouldn't have done that. That's cognitive dissonance. You're, 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 you're living in two different spheres. I did it, but I shouldn't have done it. And so many people actually feel this when it comes to evangelism or when it comes to reaching out. They don't want to be weird. They don't want to be awkward. They don't want to be uncomfortable, but they also want to reach the lost. So we experience uh, this dissonance between those two things. And we end up, this is what, when people say we feel, we feel torn. How many times have you had a conversation lead you to that point where you know that that there's an opportunity for you here to share the gospel. There's an opportunity here for you to pray for somebody. There's an opportunity for you here to invite somebody to church. Or maybe you were sitting in a coffee shop and you saw somebody sitting somewhere by themselves and you thought, I should invite them to church. And then you walked away and you didn't. And as you walked out, you felt torn. I should have done it. I should have just offered that prayer. I should have just said something. Cognitive consonance, on the other hand, is when your thoughts and beliefs are synonymous with what you say and do. When a person's conscious knowledge, attitudes, and awareness are congruent with and in harmony with their unconscious, emotional, and innate beliefs. In other words, in simple terms, it's when you live what you believe. When what you believe and how you live, what you do, what you say, they come together, they're united, they're congruent they're together. They're integrated. This is kind of what James was talking about in the book of James, chapter number two, and verse 26, when he said, For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, these two things can't be separated, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. If you say you have faith, but your faith doesn't produce works, our faith is not based in works, but it produces works. If, you're, if you say you have faith, but it doesn't change the way you live or the way you act or the things that you say or the things that you pursue, then your faith is not alive. It's dead. In other words, if we really have faith, it will be, produce works in keeping with our faith. So what's the problem? Why are we experiencing cognitive dissonance in the area of reaching the lost? Why, why do we struggle with it? Well, on a practical level, what should we do in order to fulfill this? And this is what churches should be spending the majority of their time on. This is what we should be talking about. This is what we should be strategizing over. This is, this is what should be a part of the conversation, a part of every conversation that we have. Rather than arguing about obscure doctrines and verses taken out of context and figuring out what's in it for us and how to make everything more comfortable, when we do all of that, we get so caught up in religion that we miss the heart of God for the lost. And for Jesus, this was not a marginal issue. 
this wasn't something that was just like a minor, hey, also while you're going about doing all the things and getting all the things and having all the things that God said you could have, uh, don't, just don't forget the last. It's kind of like tagged onto the end, like a little bit of a, just a, a reminder every now and again that, oh yeah, you know, there's people, you know, going to be separated from God for eternity. Don't forget them as well. We've, we've, very, we've become very self-centered, even in our faith. So easy for us. Look at this example that Jesus shared in Luke 15, verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. I always found it really interesting that, that sinners and tax collectors and the tax collectors were you like, you know, SARS. I knew SARS would be lumped in there with the sinners, you know. <laughs> The thing is, though, is that these tax collectors were the people that actually sided with the, the, the Roman government against their own people. And their arrangement was, you can tax your own people as much as you want. Just give Caesar what belongs to Caesar and you keep the rest for yourself. And so they literally are people who defrauded their own nation. And so they're lumped in with the, with the prostitutes and the sinners and all the others. They were seen as, as scum in this day. But these people were drawn to Jesus. Yet the Pharisees, the religious people, the scribes, grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They were more concerned with their image than the mission. They were more concerned with their religious position than the heart of God for the lost. And so it's important to note that Sinners weren't drawn to Jesus because he approved of their sin, but because he offered them a way out. See, the Bible says we're slaves to sin. And if you're a slave and you find somebody who has the keys to set you free, you'll be drawn to that person. Sinners will be drawn to you and to the church, not because you affirm them in whatever desire they are pursuing, but because you're offering them a better way, a life-giving way, a higher purpose. We're not helping people by patting them on the back as much as our culture is threatening us that if we do not do that, we would be canceled. We're not here to pat people on the back and affirm whatever they feel that is right to do, because in essence, what we're doing is that we're patting them on the back and encouraging them all the way through the gates of hell. We're not here to affirm every decision that you've made. Because some of your decisions that you have made are sinful. And are going to bring destruction to your own life. We're here to share that Jesus has given us a way out of sin. Into a life that is going to be fruitful. And that's going to bear fruit that remains. And so... Jesus eats with them. When the Pharisees complain at another point, he says, is it, just remind me again, is it the healthy that need a doctor or is it the sick? I've come here not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so what we're called to do is not to affirm sin, but to take sinners by the hand and to journey with them and to share the truth of God with them. To share meals with them like Jesus who ate with sinners and, and, and who spent time with them while the religious people were more concerned about appearances. Jesus actually 
reserved his harshest criticism for the religious people. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said, on the outside, you look all beautiful. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Those were Jesus' words. So do you see the dissonance there? Outside, everything presented great, everything looking very religious, very, very pure, very clean, but on the inside filled with death. That's religion. That's not what God has called us to. And so Jesus, in order to help them understand the heart of God, tells them the story in verse three, it says, so he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Amazing how Jesus identifies with the lost. The lost, that's my sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance or at least think they have no need of repentance. Can we agree together that this clearly is a priority of heaven? Sinners coming to know Jesus is not a small issue or a marginal issue. It is a priority. So much so that when one unbeliever comes to Jesus, all of heaven stops and rejoices together. This is important. And so it's a main issue. It's a foundational issue for Jesus. And I'd say it again. If you're more passionate about a specific doctrine than you are about leading people to Jesus, then your faith is lopsided. You know, there's different models of church. There's different ways that, and people develop their own formulas that are like, like have touches of the Bible sprinkled on it, but isn't necessarily biblical. And they're like, that's my thing. Some people are like, we gotta go back all the way to like Acts. We gotta be the Acts church and we gotta do it like that. And then we gotta be this and then, or we gotta be this or the music must sound like that or the level must be like, you know what? The model is adjustable. The message is what's timeless. And we're dying for the wrong things. We're dying on the wrong hill. If that's what you're focused on, your faith's lopsided, it's unbalanced. And it's unbiblical. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here. You guys are so specific about your religion, but you've forgotten about the lost. You're not majoring in love. So how do we reach the lost? Here's a few ideas. Number one, it starts with knowing the gospel. You've actually got to know the gospel. You've actually got to have received the gospel in your own heart, in your own life. This is not Herbalife. We're not recruiting people for a product. If we have any Herbalife salespeople here today, hey, we love you. There's place in the kingdom for you. We're not recruiting people though for a program or a product. We're bringing them to Jesus. We're introducing them to the person of Jesus. There's a, a simple pathway that we find in the book of Romans that just clearly declares what our message is. And I thought I would take you through it. Many have called it the Roman road. And this is just a few stops in scripture, five stops in the book of Romans that shows us what the gospel is. In Romans 3 verse 23 is the first stop 
where it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is where we start. Because that in itself is the awareness for the salvation that is in Christ. You need to come to the place where you can admit, I am a sinner and I have sinned. And the truth is, everybody will admit that if you ask them one or two questions. Have you ever told a lie? Of course I have. Have you ever stolen something or been dishonest? Of course I have. Have you ever been greedy or selfish? Yes, of course. Who hasn't? Yes, exactly. All have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. None of us have lived righteous lives. And it includes me and includes every single other human being you've ever seen on the face of the earth. We've all fallen short. That's why the gospel is for everyone. What is the result of that falling short? What is the result of sin, which means to miss the mark? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, the payout that we receive because of our sin, having fallen short, is death. Spiritual death. Separation from God. That is the, the destiny of every single human being outside of Jesus. But God did something. He offered us a free gift. And this is a free gift. It's not something we work for or earn. It's through the grace of, of God. He gave us this free gift, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8 says, stop number three, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we all fell short. The wages of our falling short in our sin was, was death. But then Christ demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners and dead in our sins, Christ died for us. He took the punishment that we deserved upon himself and paid the price that we should have paid. Then Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, how do we respond to that message? How do we respond to what Jesus did for us? It says this, if you confess with your mouth, stop number four, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Do you see there how the, the congruency is back again? You're confessing something that you believe. You're saying what you're trusting in. And so, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with your heart you believe, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we confess Jesus and we believe in him. Then what's the result? Stop number five, Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're leading somebody to Jesus, you're like, what, is, what, what, is, what am I supposed to share here? Follow the Romans road. Follow the Romans road. Let it lead, help you to lead people to Jesus. Notice here that no, no part of this affirms sin, but it affirms that Jesus died for our sin. The road to salvation is always the road that leads to Jesus. Acts 4, 11 to 12 says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. This was a, 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 a speech that Peter was giving. And he said that it was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Anybody who says that Jesus is just one way to God is an unbeliever. 
He is not just one way. He is the only way. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one door. And it's Jesus. That's the gospel, church, right? Number two, live your values. Live what you believe. The most inspiring people that I've ever met are people that are just, uh, and and I was actually speaking to my wife about a a friend of mine that I met while he was in university and I was doing ministry in that university and we became friends. He's a worship leader now in Cape Town. And I was just telling my wife about him the other day and, or actually last night. And uh, and I said, you know, the amazing thing about him is that he never looks like he needs to impress anybody. He's just truly himself, loves God, loves his family, and just lives the life that God has called him to live. And, and, and the thought that, that comes up is he is just a person of integrity. But have you ever thought about the fact that the word integrity and inte- integrated are the same, same concept? Why do we say people have integrity? And they'll, they'll define integrity as when you're the same person in front of people than you are when you're alone. That's integrity. Why? Because you're an integrated person. You're not living a double life. Now, sometimes that's a process for us. But the people that to me have been the most inspiring are the people that just live the life. They're just authentic. They just, they just have had God work in them to the point where they've matured as believers and they've stopped wrestling. There's a point that you've got to come to where you stop wrestling with the same theological points over and over again. The Bible even says that we're, we're supposed to deal with the fundamentals at a certain point in our development, you know, repentance from dead works and, and, and the work of the Holy Spirit and all those kinds of things. And then we're supposed to move on. Not that we forget them, but we don't have to go back to them over and over again to try and figure out what it means to be a Christian over and over again. At some point, it's just going to become who you are. And then you've got to live out. And be on mission and do the things. We can't keep teaching you the ABCs. Imagine, imagine if you went to school for 12 years and every day you got there, they just taught you how to read over and over again. How to make the different sounds of the alphabet. You're not going to progress. You're not going to be able to take that knowledge into a marketplace or into the world and produce something effective with it because you're just going through the same basics over and over again. We should not be having to reiterate the same things for you over and over and over and over again. At some point, you've got to mature beyond those basics so that you can move on into the mission that God has for you. And it's not that we abandon the basics. Please understand what I'm saying today. But we've got to learn at a point to live with the flow of the Holy Spirit. We've got to learn to get into that movement where we're not fighting the current of God's word. Now, I don't know if you've ever swum in a river that has a very strong current, but where we go to on holiday as a family every year in December uh, is down in a little town called Stillby in the, in the Western Cape coast. And there's an estuary there. And so the current, when the tides turn, it flows very strongly. It either pushes up towards the bridge, up, up river, or it pushes out towards the sea, depending on, on that current. And having grown up there, we've learned how to read those currents and swim in those currents and even enjoy those currents. And, uh, and if you're trying to swim against that current, you'll be exhausted. You get, you get tapped out so quickly. And it's amazing how many people are exhausted from fighting the current of God's word in their lives. It's just constant striving. Whereas when you 
turn around and let the current take you. What my boys will often do when they're swimming there in the lagoon is that they'll run upstream when the current's going out towards the sea and then jump in and then just let the current take them down. One year when they were still little, uh, a friend of mine, he was staying there as well. His name is Christoph. He was also a pastor in our city and we're still good friends. And we were there and together we have like a hundred kids. And so we decided what we were going to do. Our kids were still little is that we were going to buy blow up boats and that we were going to take the kids to the bridge and then just float downstream with them at the, at the, during that tide. And so we did that. But of course, the boat I bought had a leak. And so at some point, we just had screaming kids that were like near drowning in this river as we were floating down in a boat that's slowly disappearing around them. But we made it out alive and it was still fun. But the point is, is that because we were going with the current, we could even take others with us. We could take our kids with us. There's an ease to it. There's a grace to it when you submit to the word of God and the movement of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit will literally push you towards God's goal for your life. Acts 11, 22 to 24 says, speaks about Barnabas. And it says, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, this is what it says about Barnabas. It says he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Have you ever met people like that? This is just a, a good person full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. Those are the kinds of people that I want to hang out with. Those are the kinds of people that I'm so inspired by. I, I, you know, if they were my leader, I would, I would have no problem following them. It's the kind of leader I aspire to be. And what was the result of being a good man, filled with the Spirit and full of faith? It says a great many people were added to the Lord. The fruit was souls being saved. So we need to follow Jesus wholeheartedly so that what we believe and how we live are united, are integrated. And this is the kind of life that actually attracts sinners. Attracts sinners to you. I remember being at a braai when I was in high school, a rugby braai. All the rugby boys got together and um, there were some friends and some girls that came around. And I was standing around the braai with a few friends. We were talking about rugby, obviously. And... Um, and there was a certain girl who came up to me and just looked straight at me. Like in the middle of this conversation, not saying anything, just looking straight at me. And so eventually it felt a bit creepy. And so I looked over at her and she said, and she just, she was, it was like she was trying to figure something out. And she said, Adrian, you know, you're so good. And I said, you know, I did play a good game this morning and, um, you know, I felt like I was improving and thank you for just affirming that. And she was like, and, and um, you know, in high school, I made a decision that during my high school years, I didn't want to drink alcohol. That was just a personal thing. I was like, I, I don't want to get into, you know, what all my friends are doing. And I really felt the call of God on my life. And so, and so she was like, why don't you need to drink? And so I kind of gave a little, you know, quick answer. In the, and then she left. And later on, I found her and I shared the gospel with her. This is why I don't need it. This is why I don't need anything other than Jesus. You see, when you, when you live what you believe, people are going to look at that and go, there's something different. I need that in my life. 
four things that the early church did. We read about in Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves, no one else devoted them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. In other words, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was the word of God. They didn't have the Bible canonized like we have right now. And so what the apostles taught, which we have in scripture, is what they devoted themselves to. To fellowship, the Bible tells us that they met from house to house and in the temple. So come in a church on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, and then also meeting in community groups, meeting in each other's homes, being in relationship with one another, breaking bread, taking communion together, and prayer. These are the things that they did in order to live what they believed. The third one, listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an inner witness that connects us with opportunities to reach people. We know the book of Acts, known as the Acts, and some people say it's the Acts of the Apostles, but many have called it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit directing and strategizing and sending and preventing and speaking and prophesying and shaking through His presence and His power. This is how real and tangible it is. In Mark 13, 11, it says, when they take you and turn you over to the court, do not worry beforehand about what to say, but, but say whatever is given to you by God in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit who will speak through you. Amen. Have you ever considered the fact that God could quite literally speak through you to another person? It's made very clear in scripture that that's what the Holy, that's how involved he is. And I know at times people have asked me theological questions or, or maybe it was an unbeliever that was seeking God in some way and they asked me a question and as they asked it, I thought, I do not know the answer for that. But I just started speaking and it's almost like I stepped outside my body and watched myself give an answer that I didn't know before and then thought to myself afterwards, that was really quite good, I should write that down. <laughs> that's just the Holy Spirit speaking through you. The Bible says we are co-laborers with God. So the key is that we are to listen to the Holy Spirit, to obey Him when He leads us. You want to reach your world? Listen to the Holy Spirit. He's setting up appointments for you. My aunt, my aunt once visited Israel. And one evening they went to the Wailing Wall. And there were a lot of people praying there. And she went, and while she was standing there, there was another lady that she felt God gave her a word of knowledge for, gave her a prophetic word from the Holy Spirit, a message to share with this lady. But she felt a bit awkward about it. And so she delayed and delayed and delayed. And eventually she saw this lady was going to leave and she thought, I have to do it. And she went up to her and she shared this prophetic word with her. And when she was done, the lady gave my aunt a word in return. And the word she gave in return is, and God says to you, never be afraid to do what I've asked you to do. When we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, don't be afraid. Just go. Do we have ears to hear and hearts to obey? The fourth one, preach Jesus. The message is always Jesus. He is the answer. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, Still I'm not ashamed, for I know him, Jesus, and I'm personally acquainted with him, whom I have believed with absolute trust and confidence. And truth in his deity. I am persuaded beyond any doubt that he's able to guard that which I've entrusted to him until that day where I stand before him. You've got to be fully convinced, fully persuaded in your own 
mind. I know him and I am persuaded. We're pointing people to Jesus and his finished work, not to ourselves and not to religion. Have you ever heard that saying that says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words? It's incorrectly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and although there's no record of him ever saying anything like that. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. We looked in the series how statistically 95% of Christians have never led anybody to the Lord. And the 5% that have, have done so at an average of once every 33 years. I'd say the silent approach isn't working. I'd say it's, it's not actually reaping the benefits of, that we expected it to. We're, we're like, I'm just going to live for Jesus and then people will just get saved. Okay, how, how many? You've had a great week, didn't you? You read your Bible, you prayed, you, you, know, you didn't kick your dog, you did what you're supposed to do. How many people did you lead to the Lord? No, none. The Bible says, how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless somebody shares the gospel with them? So it's necessary. It doesn't have to be complicated. Serve the people around you. Lead your own kids to Jesus. I'm amazed at how many parents feel okay with playing fast and loose with their children's eternal salvation. Bring your kids to Jesus. Instill the value in them. Bring your kids to church. Let them experience God's presence. Invite your friends to church. Start a community group or run an alpha course. Offer to pray for people in need. And trust God for opportunities to share your faith. It's actually very simple. Now you might be wondering, what is the most effective form of evangelism today? And in spite of what you may think, it's not getting into theological debates on Facebook. Right? It's not fighting with your Catholic aunt about transubstantiation at the, at the dinner table, right? Nobody has been like, I saw these Christians discussing theology on Facebook shouting at each other. So, you know, from that day forward, I decided to commit my life to Jesus. I've never heard that testimony. <laughs> Generally, what happens is that people get invited to church. They get invited to an environment where there's a community that believes in Jesus. And so the most effective form of evangelism today is building and planting life-giving churches, which is point number five, build the church. See, Peter Wagner said the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. When you put a church in a community that has a heart for the lost, the people from that community are equipped to go and reach the people in that city. That's why we're here in the city. That's why God spoke us into being. That's why we exist so that we can go and reach those outside of our church and bring them to Jesus and, and to preach Jesus to them by inviting our friends and family to church. That invitation, when you go out and invite somebody to come to church, is not an invitation to a service. It's an invitation to hear the gospel. And I can assure you that to the best of my ability and everybody else who steps up onto this platform, we will do everything in our power to make sure we present the gospel every Sunday. We preach the gospel in church and, and we invite people on the journey as a community traveling together in the purposes of God and then together figuring out a thousand different ways that we can more effectively reach our city. Do you know which churches unbelievers prefer to attend? They prefer to attend the churches that believers attend. 
And what I mean by that is that sometimes we, we want unbelievers to come to church, but we're the believers and we, don't, we hardly come to church. The first thing my wife and I do when we go into a new city and we want to get some coffee, we don't just walk into the closest coffee shop. We, find, we go online and we research speciality coffee and we find out where do the baristas drink their coffee. I want to go there. And so one of the best things that you can do if you want to reach the lost, even if you haven't yet invited somebody to come with you, is come yourself. Because when the room is full, we create an atmosphere that when visitors come, they go, wow, God is moving here. These people are passionate. We found people that are committed to their values and they are living it out. And they, they are, they, they, they're, they've got consonants in terms of what they believe and they are there. And there's God is moving. I want to be a part of it. Come to church and you will create the kind of momentum that will bring unsaved people to church. The room feels different when we show up. I want to end with this. And if you're one of those people getting baptized today, we've got a number of people getting baptized. Uh, you can go ahead just to the, the change room right now and uh, get ready for your baptism. We're going to celebrate the water, by the way. We figured out we bought a special connection that allowed us to put warm water in this straight from the, the tap out there. So um, we've got warm water in there, which is amazing. Um, and so you can go ahead and get ready right now. But I want to just end with Acts 8 verse 26. Because we see all of those elements kind of in this little passage. It speaks about Philip and it says, The angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. No delay, no questions. God sends me to the desert, to the wilderness. I think nothing's going to be happening there. Nothing's going to be going on. I'm going. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. He's searching. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran. The Holy Spirit speaks, we listen, we act, we run over ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand the gospel? Do you know the message? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture he, reading, he was reading was this, and I'll read that now, but what I love is, is that when we, when we present the gospel, we will get an invitation to go on the journey with people to actually journey with them. He was reading this verse that says, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. Hey, there's some great advice for us as Christians. He opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, what did he do? He told him the good news about Jesus. He used that scripture to show this is pointing to Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. 
Sorry, ours is on this side. Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? I love how this man, having heard the gospel, didn't need like a 10-year process before he could obey God and go through the waters of baptism. He didn't need like the right outfit and the right whatever. He was just ready. And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. I'm really praying that just once in my life, God will allow me to baptize somebody. And as they come up out of the water, I've just disappeared. That would just be so cool. And then they go onto Facebook and maybe a live video comes up and they're like, Adrian's preaching in Cape Town, but he just baptized me. Because this is kind of what happens here. The Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. But the eunuch, he went on his way rejoicing. See, there was a longing in his heart that was fulfilled. He wondered, who is this speaking about? It's about Jesus. It produces joy. But Philip found himself at Azotus, which is about 60 kilometers away. Okay, so not Cape Town, Pretoria. And he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Tradition tells us that this Ethiopian eunuch went back home to Ethiopia and founded the church there, the, a church in Africa. See, he encountered Jesus and then created a place where others could do the same. We've encountered Jesus, right? And so what we're building here as a church, as a community, in this Sunday service, in this building, in your community groups, in your everyday life, what we're building here is a place where people can encounter Jesus. That's the message. That's what we're called to do. It's simple. Let's trust God and let's reach our city.